0: Welcome to In My Town with Emery Hayes. We have gone within minutes from a state of emergency to a national crisis, coronavirus, and preceding it in my town, fear. It carries a pulse, steady, but not staccato. People still smile. The line at the drive through Starbucks is still long and when I'm out for my walk, so are others. We maintain our distance, but wave children scamper down the sidewalk laughing. Two weeks ago, I recorded the podcast with my window open, listening to the boys across the street playing basketball, the rush of the wind as cars drove by, the usual, normal. But beyond that, all is not right with the world, and it's coming, or is it? If we're all good, if we're isolating, going to the grocery store once a week, keeping our distance and then some. I'm a homebody. Long, languid days of reading and writing are a dream come true, and I don't intend to waste the days ahead. There's yard work and rooms to paint, too, a chore we've been ignoring even as we trip over the paint cans set aside in our foyer. There will be more family game nights and movie marathons. I might even soften a bit and allow popcorn in the living room with the new couch and carpet. But before I can relax and enjoy all that, there are thoughts to slay. Worry creeps in like the fog in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, my most favorite poem ever. Thank you, T.S. Eliot. I feel it gathering around my ankles and do my best to climb to high places, to thoughts that are buoyant, hopeful, sustaining. We have a new normal now. It's temporary, even if lengthy. We will flourish within the limits. Today, we went in search of toilet paper, children's Motrin and meat, not to stockpile, but because we're running low. We went last night, too, and two days before that to all the usual places, but today we stopped at a small drug store. Divide and conquer. Certainly a drug store would have the reserves of pain relievers we needed, and they did. I purchased two bottles in liquid form and a bottle of Chewables. Is it enough? I console myself with the thought that every American was haunted by the same words today. At Costco, we picked up the last package of ground beef and the last of the roast beef in the cold case and a large bag of frozen chicken breasts. At Walmart, I was handed two boxes of baby wipes from a flatbed and was told to go now, everyone gets two. I was happy, but no toilet paper or paper towels anywhere. I ended up with three jumbo packages of napkins and two boxes of facial tissue. I'm good at adapting, I'm flexible, and placed a stack of Vanity Fair entertaining quality napkins on the toilet tank. Of the 10 plus hours I spent in stores over the past several days, I noticed that people were kind, patient. There was an undercurrent of anxiety. And in some places, the shoppers were so many, there was no honoring the six feet of social distance. I decided to limit my grocery shopping to once weekly and to go in the wee hours of morning. I feel better having a plan. Loss has many currents and I know before I write today that at least one will show up on the page. Remember, during free writes, your internal editor is turned off. Words flow and you will leave them on the page where they'll thrive or struggle through their last breath. And because we're an insecure bunch, allow yourself 15 minutes afterward to add a little shine. My free write. Adrift. That could be a good thing, Tina reminds herself. It can be like floating on a Caribbean tide with white sand and Mai Tais, waiting for just beyond the surf and umbrellas, colorful and protective. She liked the best of both worlds. She wanted excitement while steeped in safety. She did not like change. So what do you think? Spence sat next to her, his feet propped on the coffee table and the Sunday paper in pieces around them. I like our place, she said. They had light and blue sky. Every room had a dedicated wall of windows. She liked the feeling of open space with three sturdy walls to brace herself. It's too small, he said. He was frowning. She didn't see because looking at him was like being pulled into an undertow. She heard it. A frown made his words just a little heavier, tighter. They were bobbing just a layer above his impatience with the subject. And he was right. They had been looking for months for the right place, close to work, close enough to friends and family, at least 1,200 square feet. They had just half of that right now. I know, she conceded. She was not good at goodbyes. Her senses engaged at even the hint of loss. Smothered by the scent of lemons, freshly cut and sitting on the counter, a knife beside them, speckled with the pulp of the tart fruit, the memory came back with a sting of citrus in an open cut, at age 11, she had stood in the kitchen as her mother prepared a glass of iced tea while she told Tina that her father was not coming home, nor her brother. A car accident on the way to tea ball practice. Tears had run silently down her mother's face. Her eyes were clear but red-rimmed, the irises bobbing, looking for mooring a safe berth. For a long time, her mother was like annealed glass, fragile, floating on a foamy sea a message tucked inside and tightly scrolled. Tina didn't need to read it to know. Her mother's heart was anchored six feet under. So let's go look at it, Spence suggested. Tina nodded and the remnants of memory scattered, let's. She stood and the newspapers beside her on the couch, rustled, now? He sat forward, dropping his feet to the carpet. You know I won't go later, she said. You're right. His legs were long, and it took only three strides before he was across our living room and at the threshold to their bedroom. Getting my shoes and jacket. Get my jacket, too, Tina called. She walked past the breakfast bar that separated the kitchen from the living area, picked up a set of car keys and her purse. At the door, she slid into a pair of Uggs. It was March and damp. We don't need those, he said, nodding at the keys. We can take the subway. All the way to Brooklyn? May as well. It'll give us a good idea about commute time. Spence worked at Sloan Kittering, four days on, three off, 12-hour shifts. He was a nurse supervisor. Tina worked several blocks east at the ad offices of Del Rey and Dulcie. She wrote the trigger phrases for every ad campaign created at D&D, the words that gripped the heart and pulled hers under. She often wondered why she didn't quit. She opened the door and stepped through it. We already know, she said. 40 minutes, give or take. The subway platform was damp from so many feet trampling through. They climbed the steps, the handrails splattered with rain. The sky came into view in shades of gray, some so pale they were like the feathers of a mourning dove, none as dark as charcoal. The worst of the storm had passed Brooklyn, and when Tina emerged from the stairs, stood on the sidewalk and turned, she could see sheets of rain over Manhattan. We left just in time, she said. Spence tucked the umbrella under his arm and took her hand in his. Did I tell you it's a two-bedroom? With a den, she confirmed. But one bathroom, double sinks, one shower. You can go first, he promised. And that only made sense. Tina had worked her way down to 20 minutes for hair and makeup. Spence kept his hair short. He was strictly wash and wear. He shaved at night because he liked having a little rough to wear to work on a predominantly woman-held field. Why aren't we talking about buying? She wondered aloud, and she remembered wisps of conversations along those lines, woven into talks of rentals and wedding dates. Let's see if we like living in Brooklyn, he suggested, and after that, set a date. The words were slow, tense, crouching close to the carpet. In the past, she'd always felt like he was ready to pounce on her, prod her, knead the way cats do, double-fisted, until she gave in, not this time. The tension was more about the reception of his words, and behind them, the limp expectation of an answer. August 10th, she said. The date was no surprise to her, but she watched her words press upon him. His breath left his lips quickly whistling between his teeth. 2020, he asked. Yes, that's this year. I know. How long have you known? One month in, she admitted. One month in, You knew you would marry me on August 10th, 2020, after dating me for one month seven years ago? I'd known the date longer than that. I knew I'd marry you after dating a month. I didn't know the year until right now. Why right now? Because the sky was misting and the clouds were pressing down upon her? Because the sun was and cotton and the absence of light made the world bleak and moved the future beyond her fingertips? But what she said was, Because together, we're like fire sometimes. And sometimes we're like the deep currents of a river, cold and swiftly moving. We're like ice cream melting between our fingers and snow on our eyelashes. We're the laughter that comes from tumbling autumn leaves. And I want that. I want it too, he said. She was good at writing ads, at creating the tear-jerking moment that tipped the scales in favor of the product. But this was real. I've had a lot of time to think about it, she said. Seven years, he agreed. It's time to make us official. Long overdue, actually. He grabbed her hand and pulled her across the street, down the sidewalk, past storefronts and empty bistro tables, to the subway, headed back to Manhattan. Where are we going? Rings, he said. Dinner, venues and catering and guest lists. We have a lot to do. Now? It's better if I keep you in the moment. I'm not going to change my mind. I know. But he'd hesitated. A moment. A breath. Not yet, she said. And that was okay. You'll know on August 11th. He nodded and smiled so deeply, lines spread out from his eyes. Yeah, that. She cut it down to a simple list. The ring, platinum, square-cut diamond. The ceremony, casual. Somewhere on the beach, so I guess that means destination. It means a small guest list, too. Small is good, he said. Cape Cod, she posed. Seafood and dancing. We don't have to go to the Cape, but you wanted to, she said. They pushed through the tumbler and found their line. Okay, the Cape and Nikos tonight, she said. To celebrate, he agreed. And to mourn, she thought. August 10th, 16 years ago, her father and brother had died. A day soaked with tears. She wanted to change that. To want to stand beneath a shower of rice and smile up at a blue sky. That's two free rights in a row where characters are getting married. I don't know where that's coming from. I'm not thinking about it, and neither are any of my characters. Or are they? I guess I'll figure that out soon enough. Have we talked about discipline? About giving writing a definite place? Consistency requires daily attendance. I've heard it said that a habit takes 30 days to assert itself. What time of day is best for you? Where the least amount of interruptions exist. Each one causes a ripple in your day, disrupts something you have planned. Soon enough, it's the end of the day and you realize something has been sacrificed. Don't let it be your writing. And don't be passive about conceding ground. I write in the morning before sunrise. A 4 a.m. start is the usual. Staggering, I know. But by the time the rest of the world wakes up and gets their groove on, I have at least 1,000 words committed to the page. And a lot of times, double that. My day always goes better if I write first because it's so important to me. Then I put in a full day's work in the classroom, return home, and immerse myself in family. I run errands, cook dinner, tackle chores, and I feel good about it all. I'm present for it all because failure is not lurking in the shadows of my mind, casting its pall over me, taunting me from the sidelines. Am I a morning person? Mmm, I've become one. Thanks for stopping by.